Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Ezekiel 36. And I hope that this morning you'll see why as we read together. Before we read, I wanted to remind you kind of, of what, you, what you probably know about Ezekiel, and that is that Ezekiel is writing in a time when uh, Israel is in constant flux. And everything that Ezekiel does is weird. I mean literally weird. He does things that are strange, like attack a rock for a year with a sword. Um, he's an odd duck. He, he, one of my favorite lines in the book is he sees this uh, angelic structure... And he describes it to you, and then at the end it says, and its rims were tall and awesome. And he describes things as though he were um, on a hallucinogenic. He sounds crazy. Indeed, if you follow his description of the temple, uh, here at the end of the book, we get this description of the temple, and he goes through with an angel walking beside him, telling him to write down all these measurements. The angel evidently had a tape measure, and he's tape measuring everything, and he tells him, write this down, write this down, write this down, and it ends in this trippy, weird vision of Ezekiel in a river with trees all along the side of the river, all bearing fruit. And Ezekiel goes... This is what the kingdom's like. And if you read it and you don't know Jesus, you think Ezekiel's crazy. But if you do know Jesus, you begin to realize he's not. Hello. You begin to realize he's not. If you know Jesus, this makes sense. You've got the 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 whole gamut of God's world being played out in symbols throughout the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel starts with uh, God's people being behaving wickedly and God saying, I'm going to mark my own. I'm going to mark my own. They're going to have a mark. It says on their head, they'll have a mark. And I'm going to mark my own and then I'm going to send an angel and he's going to wipe out everybody else. That's the prophecy of the exile. It's also the prophecy of redemption. The exile is a reminder of the redemption of God. So, we see this beautiful picture played out in Ezekiel. We come to chapter 36, and at this point in chapter 36, God has finally had it with the shepherds of Israel that He has hired to lead the people, that He has appointed to lead the people. He's had it with them. He's done. He's tired of them not doing what they're supposed to do. In chapter 34, he laments about them and says, you have not bound up the lame, you have not taken care of the broken, you have not done what I have called you to do, and instead my people suffer and languish, and so I'm coming. Which is both beautiful and terrifying. It's the same image that Jesus gives us with the parable of the tenants who kept killing and murdering the people who came to get him. He kept... He, they kept killing and murdering the people who came to, to, to receive the rent and receive the message. He, he kept murdering those people. And so God then uh, steps in and says, fine, I'm coming. 
and the tenants tremble because judgment is coming. So we come to chapter 36, verse 22. And we see this beautiful picture of what it means to God's people when He comes, when He lands upon His people. A terrifying and beautiful thing. Let's read together verse 22 through, uh, we're going to go all the way through 38. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When, you, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the front, the fruit. Oh, goodness, this is so beautiful. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of the famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Oh, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on that day I on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then... The nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord and I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. This also. I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to the increase of their people like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. And then they will know 
that I am the Lord. Now, this is magnificent. Just take a second to recognize a few things. Number one, why does God do this? Why does He rescue? He doesn't rescue because He sees some inherent worth in people. He doesn't rescue because He determines that you are good enough to be rescued. He doesn't rescue because you made the right decisions at some point in life. Look at it. He rescues for His name. For His name and His glory alone. Now, let's deal with some philosophy here just for a minute. Why is it a good thing that God rescues and does everything according to His name? Why is that a good thing? You see, the truth is we don't want God to act because we're good or based on our goodness. We don't want God to act. We don't want God to put us above Himself. There's several old songs that, we, uh, that I grew up singing just randomly. We didn't sing them often, but occasionally you'd sing one of these songs that elevated humanity above Jesus. They weren't intentional. It wasn't intentional. But you have heard them, and if I were to say their lyrics, you would go, hey, I like that one. So I'm not going to do it. Maybe after I'm not being recorded. But they are lyrics that talk about the praise and wonder of God and then say, and He put us above Himself. These are... Not true statements. Indeed, what did Jesus say when he was going to the cross? Not my will, Lord, but yours. His concern was God's will. The will of the Father. His concern going to the cross was not that you would be placed above everything else, but that God's will would be placed above everything else. Indeed, God is most concerned with His glory and name in Scripture. If you want to do a a fun word search, just go through and look for all the places where it says, For my name. For my name. If you just do a search, you can, with our modern tools, it shouldn't take you more than a couple minutes. You just type it into whatever search engine, For my name, in the Bible study, and it will pop up. And you'll have hundreds of hundreds of times when the Lord says, For my name. For my name's sake. For my name. I'm going to do this for my name. I have a list of them on my computer. I'd be happy to give them to you. Maybe I'll post that this week and you can look them up. But this this is one of the chief characteristics of God is that He is for His name. And hear me, that sounds uncomfortable to us because if I am for my name above everything else, that's wrong. But why is that wrong? Because I'm not the greatest. I'm not the greatest. Even though sometimes I think I am, I am not the greatest. Right? There's an ultimate above me. There's a a pinnacle above me, and that's God Himself. Now, if there is nothing greater than God, I told you we were going to do a little bit of philosophy, if there's nothing greater than God, then what is God to worship? If there's nothing greater than God, 
then what must God proclaim as greatest worth? Himself. He must proclaim Himself as the greatest worth. Because He is the greatest worth. If He were not to proclaim Himself as the greatest worth, He would be lying. And He would cease to be the greatest. You understand? This is a little bit of philosophy. It's a little bit muddled, but it's the best we can do. Why am I excited about God setting Himself above all other things? So here's why. In 3 John chapter 1, verse 11, it talks about good. And it says, it explains that good emanates from God. That which is good comes from God alone. Only, the only thing that's good comes from God alone. This is reinforced in the Genesis narrative when he, when he creates and he says, uh, I see it's good and I say it's good and it is, give me the word, good. I see it's good, I say it's good and it is good. Things find their goodness when God identifies them as good, proclaims them to be good, then they are good. They are not good until that happens. Indeed, we see it through the whole Old Testament. Man tries to proclaim what's good on his own. You see it in the book of Judges. Everyone went around doing what was good in their own eyes, right? They're trying to proclaim what is good in their own eyes. Samson sees a Philistine woman, and it says he saw, she was, she, he saw in his own eyes that she was good, and he said, this is Tov. She is good. We translate it, she was beautiful. Right, because, but understand the Hebrew there is making a call back to Genesis. He sees what is good and says what is good, and it is good. We get goodness from God. Second, what's that great, great scripture, 1 John 4, verse 8? God is love. God is love. Not love is God. God is not defined by love. Rather, God is the definition of love. He is the one who defines what love is. We proclaimed some things during our prayer time about who God is. Holy, just, forgiving, merciful, everlasting. All these great characteristics about who God is. If these are all things that God is, God defines these things, then it is good for Him to be proclaiming His name above all else. He is the ultimate value. There is nothing that can be valued beyond Him. He is the greatest of all things. He is the greatest being in existence. Indeed, as R.C. Sproul put it, He is the only being. Everything else is a becoming. Because everything else changes and grows. God is the only thing that is in a perfect condition permanently. He is. His very name. His very name. Yahweh. We read it multiple times in there when it says, I am the Lord. <laughs> Yahweh. That very name means I be. I exist. I being. He is so great. He defies naming. 
And if goodness and love emanate from God and existence emanates from God, there is nothing higher than His name. Therefore, it is exactly what we want for Him to say, I will do this for my name. It's exactly what we want. We want His name exalted because it is the highest good, it is the greatest love, it is the most right and just, it is the holy name. We want His name exalted. So, we dive into this text and it says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Yeah, the Lord God, uh, that's God Almighty, the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations to which you came. So what does God do when His holy people have profaned His name? Now, He's a just and holy and righteous God. And His people have spurned His name and rejected Him. They have refused to worship according to what He has led them to. They have refused to lay their lives before Him. They have refused to follow. So what does God do? What would you do? Maybe you'd bring some sort of punishment. Plague. Maybe you'd wipe them out and start over. Maybe you would would crush them. So I'm going to take this one and I'm going to start over with him. Maybe you do all those things. But what is God going to do in the prophecy here? And I will vindicate, verse 23, And I will vindicate my holiness, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Oh, this is scary. God lays out, I'm going to vindicate my name. I'm going to take you and I'm going to use you to show the whole world that I am. That I am. This is terrifying. Right? I mean, I'd be shaking if I was hearing Ezekiel say this out loud. Terrifying. I will vindicate the holiness of my name. The nations will know. They will look on you and they will know. Uh oh. We're in trouble. That would be my thought. Verse 24. Now I want you, I'm going to read this quickly. I want you to take note of the personal pronoun I as we go through here. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. What? If it's a good thing that I'm not God. 
Because if this were me, it would have been, I will destroy you. I will make you desolate. I will wipe you. You've profaned my name. You've rejected the ultimate truth. You have scorned me among the nations. But what does God do? He says, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you from the nations. I'm going to clean you off. I'm going to give you a new spirit, a new heart, a new soul. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus. He says, unless you're born of water and spirit, it's right there. I'll sprinkle you with clean water. And I'll put my spirit within you. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and goes, listen, the only way you're going to be saved is if I clean you completely. If I take your sin, if I take your, your, your wickedness, if I take that and I take it from you. This is powerful. Just look at how beautiful this is. I will take you from the nations. So what does God do in the face of wicked people? First, He vindicates Himself through His people. He takes His people and He vindicates His holiness. He vindicates His glory. The reality of His name. And how does He do it? One, He brings salvation to those people in verse 24 by separating them from the world. You are not of the world. You're merely in it. Sounds an awful lot like something we hold strongly to as Christians. That we are resident aliens in this world. We are separated from the nations. He take you from the nations and He will put you into His kingdom. He will take you from the nations. I will gather you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. You... So, so here's, you have messed everything up. You, us, we, have messed everything up. We have rejected and scorned God. We've made Him look like a byword among the nations. And what is His response? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you to me. You wouldn't come. I'm going to get you. That's what this is. I'm going to come and get you from the nations, and I'm going to separate you from the nations. And you will be here in this world, but not of it. Because you have a land that is your own. You have a land that is your own. Isn't that comforting to know that God is keeping you and separating you from this world? What government can hurt you if God has separated you? What taxes could be levied on you that would be too much to bear? Nothing. Nothing. How beautiful is this? We've made a byword of God and He takes us from the nations. Second, He will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. God brings salvation by separating you from the people of the land and then cleanses you. He cleans you. Jesus Christ dies on the cross, taking your sins upon Himself, that, he, that your sins would be obliterated. Romans 6, the old man is obliterated, destroyed, gone, rendered useless. He is no longer, you've been 
cleansed and changed. He says, not only will he cleanse you, but look, he will change you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Now just for a moment, ponder the reality that God takes your sin, takes your evil, takes your wickedness, removes them from you, gives you a new heart, and somehow you retain your individuality. What a gentle procedure this must be to remove your heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, and maintain your unique, individual, created self. How incredible is that, that when he takes our heart of sin and and evil and removes it from us and then puts in his guiding Holy Spirit, giving us a new nature, according to Colossians chapter 3, giving us a new nature and setting us to walk after him, we don't become robots. We don't all become one homogenous blob that looks the same. But we are still, even in the book of Revelation, every tribe and tongue and nation praising the Lord. All individual with their own languages and sounds and songs united in praise before God because God loves a creative palette. All kinds of people. Anxious people. Happy-go-lucky people. People who are zealous, type A personalities who drive everyone else nuts. Type C personalities who drive all the A personalities nuts. People who are constantly in flux. People who are up and down emotionally and just ride on the clouds in a moment and then fall. And the anticipation almost pays for the thud. People who are rock steady and consistent always. God does not take away your individual uniqueness when he redeems you. Isn't that beautiful? And look at this text. He says here, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This procedure that he does is amazing. And I, and then he, he says one more thing. So you've got three things here. He says, one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean you. Two, I'm going I'm to sanctify you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change your heart. And then three, I'm not going to stop there. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, it wasn't just simply enough to, to clean us off, brush off the dirt, and then send us back. Instead, God cleans us off, brushes off the dirt, changes our internal makeup without destroying our individual personalities, and then walks with us into the world, and walks alongside us. Indeed, indwelling our spirits, so that we are able to obey. So that we are able to find joy. Because remember, He is the highest good. He's the highest good. And if we put anything else in the category of highest good, we lose all joy. So if He's the highest good, 
And we need to follow him. And we are naturally disposed to put something else there. And we are disposed because of the world around us to put something else up there. Then we need his spirit in us to remind us that he's the highest good. And that we walk with him. And oh, how gentle is God in this. He offers such gentle and loving reproof and correction to lead us. Doesn't he? Like, he we, we start veering this way and God goes, Hey, come, come back, come back, come back. He doesn't break our legs or, or destroy us. Unless we're way off in the weeds and he has to carry us back. Because a good shepherd will do that. You know, occasionally a good shepherd takes time and he, he finds the sheep that keeps wandering off and he keeps going to get them. And occasionally he'll take his rod and he'll crack the leg of that sheep. And it sounds really harsh. But then he takes the sheep and he carries it over his shoulders until the leg is healed. doesn't take long. Carries it over his shoulder until the leg is healed. And in doing this, in bearing the weight of the wickedness of the sheep upon himself, he trains the sheep to walk next to him the rest of his life. William Barclay has this incredible story of a shepherd who had one sheep that just wouldn't leave his side. Kept nipping at his heels. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but William Barclay tells it, so I'm, I'm inclined to believe it. And he, he spent time in Israel observing shepherds, um, and he's walking with this particular shepherd, and the shepherd says this, you know, keeps like shaking the sheep off. And William Barclay says, why is that sheep obsessed with you? And he said, this sheep wandered off when he was a child, when he was a baby, and I had to carry it for a very long time. And now, it never wants to leave my side. Isn't that how it is? When we know the Lord? When we really know Him. When we recognize our own transgressions and our own sins and our own wickedness and we see He has carried me through life. Isn't that how it is? That it feels best to be right next to Him. Even carried in His arms. Isn't that how it is? God keeps you. So He cleanses you, He changes you, and He keeps you. He says, I'm going to make you mine. I'm the highest good, and I'm going to make you mine. What joy is that? Then in verse 28, He he tells them what's going to happen to His people. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Note, there's no question here for them. There's no, if you, then I. There's, you are, and I am. There's no question. He doesn't ask your permission. He doesn't need it. God is king. He is the highest good. He is the creator of all things. He requires no permission. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bring you into the land that I promised your fathers. Now, 
He says, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This very clear reference to Israel, the nation, being brought into the land and made his people. That, I want to be clear, that will happen. It will happen. When God comes back and sets everything right, this will happen. National Israel does exist. It's not some metaphorical, figurative thing here. He's talking to the nation of Israel, and he is addressing them directly. Now that is uh, a little bit further beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. I'd be happy to have lunch conversations with coffee conversations about that for hours. But know this, that God is not done with his work with the nation of Israel. And there are many who claim to be the nation of Israel who are not Israel. According to Paul, there are many who are. God has preserved for himself a remnant out of that nation. We show up, by the way, at the end of this, we show up at the end of this passage. Just So if you're wondering where we come in, it's the end of this passage. Generically, God deals with his people this way. And that's why this passage is so beautiful, because it's the way he dealt with us. It's what Jesus describes when he talks to Nicodemus. It's what Jesus describes throughout the parables in the Gospel of Luke and in Matthew. It's what Jesus describes God doing in our hearts. But I do want you to remember, God keeps his promises. He does not fail. He keeps his promises. And verse 28 solidifies that. I will be your God and you will be my people. Verse 29. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine on you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. He says, I'm going to provide for you to such abundance that the nations will look at you and go, wow, look at that. And I would add, they neither labor nor toil, and yet the Lord provides for their every need. Jesus, talking about the sparrows, why do you worry about tomorrow? Consider the sparrows, how they neither labor nor toil. And yet, I provide for their every need. Consider the flowers of the field. Are they not arrayed in splendor greater than that of Solomon? Yet they do not worry. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things cast your cares upon the Lord, for He cares for you. God cleanses His people. He provides for His people. So I ask you again, What can government do to you? Nothing. All that stuff the government says they own, they don't own any of it. They don't own any of it. It's all God's. What do you think Jesus means when he hands the guy the coin and says, whose face is on this? And they go, Caesar's. Well, they got it wrong. Caesar's made in the image of God. Whose image is on this coin? It's mine. It's God owns it. But they say Caesar. Jesus is like, all right, give it to Caesar then. I don't need it. I don't need it to provide for my people. Peter just walked down to the shore and grabbed a fish off the ground and it had, it had tax money in it. Now, 
ponder that for a minute. That means that at some point, God had a fish swallow a coin and then swim up on the shore. At some point, a fish swallowed a coin and swam up into Peter's hands. And Peter picked it up and went, ah, coin. What's remarkable about that story is Peter doesn't say anything else. Peter, the most verbose and obnoxious disciple, doesn't say anything else. He just goes over and is like, I found this in a fish. And Jesus takes it from him and moves on. They don't explain anything. Jesus doesn't go, yeah, I put it there. There's nothing. Nothing. No, you found a coin in a fish. This is not normal. You don't find coins in fish. It doesn't happen. So, God says, I will provide for your every need. I will take care of your every need. I will provide. Verse 31 and 32, we see the response of people who have been confronted by such a great love. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. It is good for us to reflect on the fact that we are redeemed because God is good, not because we are good. It is good to look back on your life and go, I was not holy. It is good to look back on it and go, I was not holy. Why? Because it will turn your eyes to say, He is holy, and He is righteous, and He is just, and we will look back on our ways and we will be confounded. How can you rescue me? How can he save me? Jonathan Edwards said every time he opens the scripture and reads it, he feels saved once again. I feel saved once again. Every time I open the scripture and read it, I feel saved anew. And his point was, I each time I read the Bible, I'm confronted with who I was yesterday. And who he's making me to be today. And I look forward to who he's making me to be tomorrow. Likewise, we respond the same way. In verse 33 through 36 here, it says, Thus says the Lord God, on that day I cleanse you, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, the waste places shall be rebuilt, the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by, and that they will say this land that was a desolation has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, the desolate, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have rebuilt and the ruined places, and replanted that which was desolate. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. I will do it. God not only says, am I going to take you individually and rescue and redeem you, and not only does he say, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to take care of all your needs, he then says, I'm not done. I'm going to make a kingdom. 
And it's going to be awesome. And oh yeah, for the next several chapters, Ezekiel gets it lined out for him. And it's weird. First, he's brought out to a field of dead bones. A bunch of bones on the ground. And he says, Prophet, can these bones live? And Ezekiel responds with the wisest response we should ever give. Lord, you know. In other words, I'm not answering that question. You know if they can live. I can't do it. You can do it. And he says, prophesy to these bones. Tell them about my name. And he tells them, and they come to life. They become people. Then Ezekiel's given this weird angel with the measuring tape that we talked about. And he starts measuring stuff in the temple. Everywhere. It's going to be this many cubits by this many cubits. The poles are this many cubits by this many. Write that down, Ezekiel. This is going to be this many. Write that down. And he comes out to the altar. And he comes to the altar of God. And out of the back of the altar, there's a little trickle of water that's coming out the back. And they, they see it coming out. And it goes out the altar. And it goes out the back wall. And they, the angel goes, well, let's walk around and go see where this thing goes. And so they start walking around. And they walk around the back wall. And they start to follow this little trickle. And it becomes a big stream. And Ezekiel's like walking in it. And it's starting to get nervous. And he's like, well, it was ankle high. And then it, then it got to knee high. And then it got to waist high. And that angel keeps telling me to measure it. And then it got up to chest high. And then we started swimming in it. And when we started swimming in it, there were trees on every side. And it had fruit everywhere. And Ezekiel begins to talk about the glory of God bringing fruit in the river of life with the tree of life on all sides. And the people of God rejoicing in the provision and life of God Himself living within them. It's a powerful, beautiful picture. God says, I'm going to change you, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to take my people, I'm going to rescue them, I'm going to provide for them, and then I'm going to build a kingdom. And when I build the kingdom, everybody's going to go, what in the world? Look at this God! Look at how amazing He is! He took something dead and made it awesome. Made it awesome. Indeed, He's going to take dead things and bring them to life. Verse 37, and here's what breaks me every time I read it. It's what breaks me every time I read it. Thus says the Lord God, this also. I love that. God's like, I'm not done. I, I talk to my kids an awful lot. And occasionally I'll start talking to them. And I'll be in this odd place of upset and trying to tell them how much I love them. You know, they did something, whatever it was. And I'll correct them. And then I want to talk to them about who they are and, and what is inside them and how great God has made them to be and how God has structured them and taught them that you are to be strong and you are to love people and you are to, to lay your burdens out before the Lord and you are to follow hard after Him. And I'll talk to them about that and I'll, and I'll, and I'll start talking to them about that and they'll, okay, alright, and, and, and I'm not done. I'm not done. Look, this is where God is, right here. He's corrected them at the beginning, and he's started to say, listen, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to make you better. I'm going to build you a kingdom. I'm going to make this amazing thing happen. Why? Because I am the greatest good. And he's going to lay this out, and then he's going to say here, I'm not done. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock. 
Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. Not one will be snatched from my hand. They are mine. No one can take them from me. The Father has placed them in my hand and no one can take them from me. Like the flock for sacrifices. So in Jerusalem, you had these flocks that were, that were raised up. We sang about it at Christmas Eve. Wrap this one up, right? That's the song. Wrap this one up. It is the Lord's. And what they would do is when a, when a sheep was born, a, a little baby lamb was born, they would wrap it up and they would set it aside. And that one got put into its own flock for the purpose of sacrifice. This is clean lamb for the purpose of sacrifice. This lamb is going to be raised in order to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. So he says here, uh, I will do this uh, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. We were supposed to die. Do you get it? We were supposed to die for sin. We were not supposed to have joy because we sinned against the mighty and holy God. And yet, he says, I will, I will bring in flocks for sacrifice and look, they will fill the city that I make. I will fill the city with people who know me and love me, and are cleansed by me, who are spotless, not because they did something, but because I did something. I will rescue. Oh, this is what our God does in the face of our wickedness. We are wicked, we do something, we sin, we, we are wrong. And God's response is, you're mine. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to clean you. I'm going to keep you. And I've got plans for you. And you get to come. And I get to come. I can't hardly read this without weeping. Because there we are. The waste cities be filled with flocks of people. And then they will know that I am Yahweh. People see God because you are redeemed. People see the Lord because you are rescued. He is the greatest good. And He is our aim every year. Not just 2020, not just 2021, every year. He's our aim, He's our focus, He's our vision. I was asked recently by a pastor, hey, what's your 20, 2021 vision? And I laughed, and I said, Jesus? And he said, no, well, what's the vision of your church? And I was like, ah, we're going to follow hard after Jesus. We're going to press hard to know him, and we're going to talk to our neighbors about him. Well, what's, your, what's your theme I just told you my theme, right? Our theme is to know Jesus and follow hard after him. Why? Because he's the one that does everything. He's the greatest good. There's not a greater theme. We're going to push hard 
after Christ because nothing can stop what He has done. If you, um, if you know the Lord, there is delight for you in everything. If you don't know the Lord, repent and believe and trust in Him and be saved. Let's pray.